Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami Welcome to another of these uh, Sunday afternoon Dhamma talks. So the uh, theme for the afternoon is uh, my way or the middle way, I believe. So <clears throat> a few reflections on this um, this particular area. So uh, as many people recognize, the um, the title was hatched from the famous uh, Frank Sinatra song written by Paul Anker, but uh, sung by uh, Frank Sinatra, My Way. And it's a a kind of anthem of uh, self-confidence. Through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up, I spat it out. It's kind of, I did it my way. So uh, confidence is uh, definitely a part of the Buddhist path. Uh, Having uh, faith, having confidence, and uh, resolution, these are all aspects of it. But uh, any of us who have uh, tr- uh, spent much time in life trying to follow that, uh, uh, say, voice of self-assurance and just, well, even though there's resistance or there's difficult, I'm just going to keep pushing. I'm going to just do it my way. And uh, Or when we are living in community or working with other people and we're in a role of leadership, uh, you know, we can see that... Um, when you uh, adopt the attitude of my way or the highway, as they say, like either you do it like I want it or on your bike, as they say, that uh, yeah, you're, you're kicked out, that uh, leads to stress and difficulty uh, and conflict. So reflecting on this theme, my way or the middle way, that uh, yes, there are certainly um, beneficial aspects to that quality of self-confidence, self-assurance and uh, uh, the quality of, of resolution, but if that is out of balance, if that is uh, wrapped up with, uh, as we'd say in Buddhist um, uh, philosophy, if it's wrapped up uh, in the qualities of self-view, self-centered thinking, then necessarily the result is going to be painful. You might get what you wanted, but then uh, there might be a lot of wreckage that lot of damage created uh, along the way. And uh, probably uh, most of us here have had that situation in life where we come to the conclusion, well, I got what I wanted, but was it really worth it? Or like, oh, I didn't realize it was going to be like this. Or I thought this was going to make me happier. You know, I got what I wanted, but... Yeah. So uh, in terms of, uh, of the, these reflections and what will be useful for us to, to look at, I felt that uh, it's um, good to consider the whole way that we uh, we work in life, how we relate to to doing, to acting, to choosing, <coughs> how intentions and actions work together. So when we we sort of uh, take confidence from uh, Frank Sinatra, say yes, I'm going to do it my way. Um, 
then uh, if we take that approach in life, again, I don't uh, have the ability to read anybody's minds, but just the, the way most of our lives function, when we act from a place of, of self-assertion and just keep pushing and, uh, uh, say, um, uh, working with our uh, occupation, working with our family, working with the, uh, the rest of the traffic on the road, working with our minds in a meditation hall. If we have that uh, contentious, self-assertive attitude, I'm going to just make this happen. I'm going to get jhana. I'm going to break through. I'm gonna, I've got this 10-day retreat, and this is sotapanna or bust. You know, stream entry or, uh, or uh, <laughs> I'm going to ask my money back. <laughs> so when we have that uh, self-assertive and uh, um, contentious attitude, when that's wrapped up with self-view, then any kind of work, I would suggest, becomes uh, exhausting. The, uh, uh, even if it's the work of uh, training your mind to be, to be peaceful. How many of us have noticed that the most peaceful moment of the meditation is when the bell goes at the end? Like, <sighs> Finally, I can relax. And it's not always just because your knees have been released from their prison. But uh, if you notice, it's, it's almost universal. When the bell goes, there's a, this sense of, <sighs> isn't that curious? Isn't it curious? Because uh, when the bell goes, I don't have to do something. I don't have to do something. <sighs> so there's a, a, a letting go of I-ness, a letting go of, of having, and letting go of, of doing. That in that moment of the bell going, <sighs> those uh, particular aspects of, uh, of self, uh, self-identity, of ownership, and, and uh, personal uh, action are all emptied out, at least for the time it takes for the bell to be rung <laughs> before we get on to the next thing. So uh, this is I- important to look at. It's the, what I like to call the, the thank God it's Friday mentality. You know, waiting for it all to be over. Oh, when, when, uh, when this meditation's over, then. Or when this retreat's over, then. Or when the week's over, then. When I'm retired, then. Uh, and we, we uh, kind of pursue peace and, and, and contentment, happiness, like the pursuing the horizon, which, lo and behold, keeps retreating. Yeah. You can't walk to get to the horizon, because no matter how far you walk, the, the, high, the horizon always retreats. Yeah, it's always, oh, another, another hill, another layer, another, uh, another distance. But So this is a very common habit. Again, I'm not reading anybody's mind. You might, uh, but this is what our, our conditioned thinking does. The way that we, we pick up action and choice and, and work is that we, we create this kind of, uh, oh, this is a chore, this is difficult. Well, you know, if, if I didn't have to do this, then everything would be fine. If I didn't have to deal with my children, it would be fine. If I didn't have to deal with this job, if only it was the weekend, if only it was my holiday, if only it was on the retreat, if only the retreat was over. Yeah, if only I could become a nun. If only I could become a monk. If only I could become a senior monk. <laughs> if only I wasn't a monk anymore. <laughs> then, then, and then, and then, and then, and then. But it's the same mentality, whether it's just working in a, a grim job waiting for Friday, 
or you know, trying to get into the monastic life or out of the monastic life or longing for the retreat to begin or longing for the retreat to, to end. It's the same condition, I would suggest. And it's just the, um, the mind um, picking up action uh, from a, in a, a self-centered way. It's like me doing and, uh, and uh, meanness, doingness and, uh, and thingness and the, and the sense of compulsion, I have to, I should. So it, it, the the theme of the of this talk is also kind of uh, contained within this famous soliloquy from Hamlet. Hamlet's uh, probably one of the most, uh, if not the most famous passage from Shakespeare. It's where Hamlet he's discovered that uh, his uncle has probably killed his father and has um, uh, married his mother, and uh, he's wondering what to do or should he do something. He's uh, he's pretty sure that uh, his evil uncle has has done done his fa- his good father to death, and then uh, cruelly um, seduced and married his his mother, and uh, he's pretty sure this is what's happened. But uh, he's wondering what to do. So he, there's this soliloquy, this this solo speech that he does, where he says, and this is in Shakespearean English. So even though English is not the first language of most people here, uh, it's probably familiar enough. But what he says is, to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them. So, is it better to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, just to let life dump on you, to be numb, to be passive, just to let it happen, to do nothing? Or is it better to take arms against the sea of troubles, to rise up and, and contend, to, <coughs> to attack, to, to take action? And so this is his dilemma. So I hope you can follow that clearly enough. To, uh, to be numb and passive and to kind of do nothing, or to take action and to uh, contend against the way things are. Uh, what's what's the right thing to do? So, uh, in a, in a way, I suspect that Shakespeare realized that, and he put those words into Hamlet's mouth because the point is that neither of them are correct, <laughs> uh, and certainly from the Buddhist perspective, neither of them uh, are, are correct because they're both uh, they, they're creating the um, the polarity of me doing nothing or uh, me uh, contending ag- against the way things are. So, me being passive in relationship to the way things are, or me contending against the way things are. But the middle way is something else. The middle way, I would, I'll talk about that a little bit more later on. I would suggest that the middle way is essentially learning how to work with the way things are. So you're not just being passive, not being uh, contentious, but learning how to work with the way things are and to work from a place of selflessness. So uh, when we we look at that kind of habit of um, of doing, I, I hope I'm not presuming too much, but certainly my experience is that the more that there is me trying to do something, even if it's me trying to do something very wholesome, very noble, very useful, um, it does create this kind of burdenness, stressfulness uh, in the heart, and so that uh, we might think, oh, this this work is too too difficult. I need to reti- I need to quit. Or this uh, meditation is making me stressed. 
you know, I'm, uh, <coughs> I'm suffering a lot. Maybe I should just stop meditating. <laughs> yeah. So that uh, instead of um, trying to follow my way and sort of push and get things to go uh, the way that we would like to just, uh, uh, say, force things to a conclusion that we want, that the, we instead go drift to the other extreme in Hamlet's soliloquy, that of being passive, to just go numb, to, to, to quote-unquote uh, give up or switch off or to, to, uh, to try to not engage. And so this is, uh, again, often where we get sort of, sort of stressed and, and burdened by life, then the way we get away from that is we switch off by consuming alcohol or drugs or... Uh, distracting the mind, to, essentially to to not feel. So uh, I used to, before I was a monk, I drank a lot, and I came to the conclusion um, that while I was drinking, uh, and I, I had a kind of epiphany here in Hemel Hempstead at a friend's twenty-first birthday party. It's my first visit to Hemel. Little did I realize that uh, <laughs> that was in nineteen seventy-seven, I think. So little did I realize that eight years later I would be moving here in, uh, as a Buddhist monk. <laughs> but anyway, that's another story. But I realized by the time I was 20 that the reason why I was drinking so much was to not feel. I just wanted to switch off. And that was the, the kind of the only way I could, I could uh, deal with just feelings of insecurity and frustration and uh, um, uh, basic uh, disconnection was to try and blot it all out. But when I was about an inch uh, from the bottom of a bottle of Teacher's Highland Cream whiskey, having consumed the first seven or eight inches, I came to the conclusion it's not working. I can't drink enough to get to the place where I feel good. I can't. It won't go numb. And so, I, and so actually I had the, the, the thought at the time, this is a waste of good scotch. But then it was, all, it was quite, even though I was obviously a little bit blurry, um, having drunk a pint of scotch, uh, it was quite an insightful moment because it was really clear that I'm just trying to, to not feel, I'm trying to, to switch off, and, and this is not the way to go. So my 21st birthday present to myself was to stop <coughs> drinking, to sort of deliberately turn in the other direction, and to say, okay, well, that's not working. <laughs> So numbing is not working. So let's let's try something else. And I don't know how. Uh, again, I can't read anybody's minds. I don't know your life stories, but I would suspect, just by the law of averages, <laughs> that a few of us in this hall have also tried that, dealing with life's difficulties by just trying to switch off, just to be distracted, to to not feel, to to forget, uh, as they as they say. It's a, you know, I believe that's a. In the French culture, that's uh, one of the reasons given why it's probably a few French people here. <laughs> Pour louer, to forget. That's the, the you want to to lose yourself in the in the the drink or the the drugs to to forget. But uh, it doesn't work, <laughs> and so this is why the the Buddha's uh, path to the end of suffering doesn't involve um, barbiturates or morphine or alcohol. But uh, because it doesn't work, this is not the way that we end suffering. And any of us who've been addicted to things and then come off them, you realize that that the numbing that happens while one is, say, taking a medication or distraction of some kind, when you haven't got your, a supply of your drug of choice, it's even worse than it ever was before. You know, if you've ever been with someone a recovering, 
heroin addict or a recovering alcoholic, then it's, uh, uh, it's, life is even more tender, even more painful, even more suffering than, than before the person had started to use that particular kind of escape. So, um, the, so we have on these two, the, the two horns of this dilemma that uh, if you try to contend against uh, the way things are and just force it to be, go your way, you end up feeling burdened and stressed and frustrated. And if you try to just switch off and not feel, that doesn't work either. So this is why the Buddha taught what we call the, the middle way, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the different path that is not just sort of half, uh, half a kind of uh, uh, obsessive and active and half numb and drunk. <laughs> Though many of us have lived our lives that way. I think probably if you're gathering for a Sunday afternoon in Amravati, you, you uh, have uh, already des- decided there must be a different way. So the middle way that the, the Buddha's path points to is um, uh, it's a, a, a whole different perspective. Because if, if you notice the, the dilemma that Hamlet was in, uh, it's very much based around self-view. Uh, I, uh, should I do something? Should I do nothing? What should I do? And that <laughs> what's, the, what's the right thing for me to do? I should push or I should, st- I should do nothing. So the, the Buddha uh, had the approach of turning the attention back onto the, the so-called doer, turning the attention back onto the attitude with which uh, the heart engages in any kind of, of activity. Uh, I would suggest that uh, we're alive, so we are in a, a process of work. We are living, we are feeling, we're engaged with the world. In a sense, we can't not work. You know, our, our, our bodies, our minds uh, function in such a way as that we, we have to feed ourselves, we have to protect ourselves from the weather, we have to look after ourselves to some degree. So uh, we, we are uh, required by the laws of nature to engage. So the, uh, the, the approach that the, that the, the Buddha takes is a, um, uh, it's kind of hinges around the different usages of the word desire. And so uh, probably a, a number of you are very familiar with uh, this uh, as an aspect of Dhamma teaching. Maybe some of you are, are not. But in, in uh, Buddha Dhamma, you have two distinct words that we would translate as desire. So the first is tanha, which literally means thirst. So uh, the Sanskrit for that is trishna. So that is uh, what well, would probably be better translated into English as craving. So tanha always has a, an agitated, self-centered quality to it. So when the Buddha talks about the cause of dukkha in the Four Noble Truths, the, the cause, the, the, the root cause of dissatisfaction and discontent um, is tanha. And it can be uh, the craving for sense pleasure, called gama tanha, karma tanha. It can be the craving to become, like a, say becoming successful, becoming approved of, uh, becoming uh, yeah, uh, uh, you know, loved and appreciated, but, you know, that, uh, that sense of uh, identified being, but it's called bhavatanha, the desire to be something, someone. And then it's opposite, vibhavatanha, the desire to, to not feel, to not be, to switch off, 
These are all kinds of tanha. So these are all aspects of craving. They're, so these are the kinds of desire that necessarily will cause dissatisfaction. That's the, like, the cause of the spiritual malaise that the Buddha's teaching uh, seeks to cure. That's the, 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 the desire that is the root of dukkha and is resolved by the, the Eightfold Path. So the other kind of desire is called chanda. Uh, so tanha is T-A-N with a dot underneath, H-A with a line over the top, tanha. And then uh, <coughs> chanda is C-H-A-N-D-A, chanda. So chanda is, um, can be translated as desire, it can be translated as uh, interest, enthusiasm, uh, it can be uh, translated as zeal. So it's in a way the mind's energy that it, uh, or the mind's motivation to direct its energy towards a particular object. So chanda can be unwholesome, like you know, it can be something that's unskillful, like like karma chanda, like uh, the desire for sense pleasure. Uh, but it also can be extremely wholesome, like dhamma chanda, the desire for uh, reality. Or, uh, and so that the uh, these two kinds of desire in in English the word desire works for both of them, but they are uh, they are very very different qualities. So I thought I would share with you a uh, couple of passages, um, one from the suttas and one from Ajahn Chah, uh, where the, exactly this is talked about. Because the uh, when the Buddha speaks of, uh, in his teaching, he talks about chanda. It's like uh, not is it just useful? It's a necessary condition for liberation. It's a sine qua non of liberation. If you don't have chanda, there's no way that you can free your heart from greed, hatred, and delusion. Spiritual development is impossible without that kind of desire. So that um, that's why it's, it's kind of tricky. <laughs> Which kind of desire do I want? Do I want the Apple or do I want the Samsung? You know, which, uh, <laughs> I've got to choose the right brand here. Yeah, and so that uh, it's important to look at the specs. <laughs> so that these two passages. So the first one is from the Sangyutta Nikaya, and it's a dialogue between Ananda, the Buddha's um, attendant and one of his chief disciples, the Venerable Ananda, and um, a Brahmin called Unabba. And it took place in uh, Kosumbi, in the um, in uh, on the river, what's now the river Yamuna. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, Venerable Ananda was dwelling at Kosumbi in Gosita's park. Then the Brahmin Unnaba approached the Venerable Ananda and exchanged greetings with him. When they had concluded their greetings and cordial talk, he sat down to one side and said to the Venerable Ananda, For what purpose, Master Ananda, is the holy life lived under the ascetic Gotama? It is for the sake of abandoning desire, Brahmin, that the holy life is lived under the Blessed One. But, Master Ananda, is there a path? Is there a way for the abandoning of this desire? There is a path, Brahmin. There is a way for the abandoning of this desire. But, Master Ananda, what is the path? What is the way for the abandoning of this desire? So, it's all very formalized dialogue. <laughs> but, Master Ananda, what is the path? Here, Brahmin, a bhikkhu develops the basis for spiritual power that possesses concentration due to desire and volitional, formation, volitional formations of striving. He develops the basis for spiritual power that possesses concentration due to energy, concentration due to mind, concentration 
due to investigation and volitional formations of striving. This Brahmin is the path, this is the way for the abandoning of this desire. Such being the case, Master Ananda, the situation is interminable, not terminable. It is impossible that one can abandon desire by means of desire itself. So the Ananda lists these four qualities. Uh, chanda, desire, interest, zeal. Virya, energy or persistence. Chitta, consideration, examination, or planning. And Vimangsa, investigation, review, reflection on results. So, but uh, Unaba saying, but hang on a minute. How can you get to the end of desire by using desire? This is a circular argument. It's, it's, it's interminable, not terminable. I, I also understand that even for people for whom English is our first language, you know, th- words like terminable are not sort of everyday speech that you, uh, you, you know, we chat with, or volitional formations of striving. These are also kind of quirky terms, but uh, hopefully I'll explain the, uh, the, the essences of it. So then the Venerable Ananda responds. He says, Well then, Brahmin, I will question you about this matter. Answer as you see fit. What do you think, Brahmin? Did you earlier have the desire, Chanda, I will go to the park, like Gosita's park, where the monastery is. And after you went to the park, did the corresponding desire subside? Yes, sir. Did you earlier arouse the energy, thinking, I will go to the park, and after you went to the park, did the corresponding energy subside? Yes, sir. Did you earlier make up your mind, Chitta? I will go to the park, and after you went to the park, did the corresponding resolution subside? Yes, sir. Did your uh, Did you earlier make an investigation, Vimangsa? Shall I go to the park? And after you went to the park, did the corresponding investigation subside? Yes, sir. It's exactly the same, Brahmin, with a bhikkhu who's an arahant, whose taints are destroyed, who has lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, and reached his own goal utterly destroyed the fetters of existence and is completely liberated through final knowledge. He earlier had the desire for the attainment of arahantship, and when he attained arahantship, the corresponding desire subsided. He earlier had aroused energy for the attainment of arahantship. When he attained arahantship, the corresponding energy subsided. He earlier had made up his mind to attain arahantship, and when he attained arahantship, the corresponding resolution subsided. He earlier made an investigation for the attainment of arahantship, and when he attained arahantship, the corresponding investigation subsided. What do you think, Brahmin? Such being the case, is the situation terminable or interminable? Surely, Master Ananda, such being the case, the situation is terminable, not interminable. Magnificent, Master Ananda, magnificent. From today, let Master Ananda remember me as a lay follower who has gone for refuge for life. So, to bring that home, okay, all of you had the desire, except for those of us who live here, I will go to Amravati uh, today to listen to the uh, Sunday afternoon talk. Once you had arrived here, you didn't need that desire anymore because you'd arrived here. Now that you're here, how many of you are thinking, I must go to Amravati? It's not there because you're here. The thought has gone. So it was useful to serve that purpose, but now its, its purpose has been fulfilled, so the thought has gone. And uh, anyway, so uh, to quote Ajahn Chah, he covers the same sort of uh, area in uh, a similar vein. So this is Ajahn Chah uh, giving a Dhamma talk. Why is the practice so difficult and arduous? Because of desires. As soon as we sit down to meditate, we want to become peaceful. If we didn't want to find peace, 
he wouldn't sit. He wouldn't practice. As soon as we sit down, we want peace to be right there. But wanting the mind to be calm makes for confusion, and we feel restless. This is how it goes. So the Buddha says, don't speak out of desire, don't sit out of desire, don't walk out of desire. Whatever you do, don't do it with desire. Desiring means wanting. If you don't want to do something, you won't do it. If our practice reaches this point, we can get quite discouraged. How can we practice? As soon as we sit down, there is desire in the mind. It's because of this that the body and mind are difficult to observe. If they are not the self nor belonging to self, then who do they belong to? Because it's difficult to resolve these things, we must rely on wisdom. The Buddha says we must practice with letting go. But if we let go, then we just don't practice, right? Because we've let go. <sighs> so that's supposed to be confusing and frustrating. So if you're feeling confused and frustrated by hearing that, you're right on the mark. So then he goes on to explain. And this, this took place in northeast Thailand, so... Uh, uh, you can translate it into your own uh, yeah, uh, of a mo uh, more local and modern-day um, example. So Ajahn Shah asks, Suppose we went to buy some coconuts in the market, and while we were carrying them back, someone asked, What did you buy those coconuts for? I bought them to eat. Are you going to eat the shells as well? No. I don't believe you. If you're not going to eat the shells, then why did you buy them also? Well, what do you say? How are you going to answer their question? If we practice with desire, sorry, how are you going to answer their question? We practice with desire. If we didn't have desire, we wouldn't practice. Practicing with desire is tanha. Contemplating in this way can give rise to wisdom, you know. For example, these coconuts. Are you going to eat the shells as well? Of course not. Then why do you take them? Because the time hasn't yet come for you to throw them away. They're useful for wrapping up the coconut in. If after eating the coconut, you throw the shells away, there's no problem. Our practice is like this. The Buddha said, don't act on desire, don't speak from desire, don't eat with desire. Standing, walking, sitting or reclining, whatever you do, don't do it with desire. This means to do it with detachment. It's just like buying the coconuts from the market. We're not going to eat the shells, but it's not yet time to throw them away. We keep them first. This is how the practice is. Concept, samuti, and transcendence, vimuti, are coexistent. Just like a coconut. The flesh, the husk, and the shell are all together. When we buy a coconut, we buy the whole lot. If somebody wants to accuse us of eating coconut shells, that's their business. We know what we're doing. Wisdom is something each of us finds for oneself. To see it, we must go neither fast nor slow. What should we do? Go to where there is neither fast nor slow. Going fast or slow is not the way. So that's from uh, Lumpo Cha's collected teachings. So these uh, different kinds of, of uh, desiring, so the, on the one hand, chanda, so those four qualities, they're called the four idipada, or the four bases of success. So in that example, Ananda uses them to describe going to the park. So they can be used to describe a kind of a mundane activity. They can be used to describe uh, spiritual development, like you have to, to uh, want to, uh, to realize enlightenment. You have to put forth the energy in order to uh, 
to uh, so, uh, reduce greed, hatred, and delusion, and to increase uh, virtue, concentration, and wisdom. Uh, you have to think about what you're doing, chitta, you have to consider, okay, uh, is this working, is this not working, is this, are my efforts heading in the right direction? And then vimangsa, that reflection or reviewing means, okay, did I, did I get to Amravati? Did I get to the park? You know, did I, uh, has the mind arrived at peacefulness? So there's that kind of reviewing. So that can be for um, spiritual realization. It can also be for robbing a bank. You have to think about you know, whether you want to rob a bank or not. Uh, and then think about um, uh, whether you've got the energy and the, uh, uh, as well as the interest to do that. You know, you've got to apply yourself. I'm not encouraging anybody to rob any banks, but just using a random, unwholesome example. So that uh, you've got to have the interest to do it, you've got to apply the energy to do it, you've got to think about, oh, how am I going to rob the bank? Well, you know, going in with a gun, you know, so kind of 20th, 20th century, you know, maybe I can learn to be a computer hacker and I'll just, you know, hack a few accounts and rob a bank that way. And then Vimangsa, okay, uh, did, did the bank get successfully robbed? Did I get away with it? Did I not get away with it? Yeah. What's the result? So those four qualities, Chanda, Virya, Jitta, Vimangsa, uh, so interest, energy, uh, reflection, uh, so, uh, consideration, and then review, uh, with their, they are kind of amoral, they're, they're morally neutral. They can be applied for things that are, are neutral, things that are, are very... Are virtuous or moral, or things that are very immoral. You know that they they apply for any kind of task we want to undertake. So that um, the more that our interest and energy and uh, reflection and so forth is divested of self-view, the more that uh, that that interest and energy and so forth is based on mindfulness and wisdom, then the more that the inclination is going to be to uh, be putting forth our efforts into things that are beneficial for ourselves and others, uh, that are wholesome, that are noble, and uh, the the more that it's going to be a peaceful process. The um, in the the Buddha's descriptions of uh, the eightfold path, one of the elements of the eightfold path is right effort. So, and you uh, you have uh, many statements of the Buddha where he says, "My path is a path of action; it's a path of doing; it's not a, a path of, of passivity." So uh, that uh, aspect of taking action, giving direction to the mind, you know, working with the mind, is a very strong part of the, the Buddha's path. So when we look at right effort, then it's a, uh, there's a, a, a very clear um, uh, schema that the Buddha lays out, uh, a very helpful format you know, of how to bring about this kind of wholesome development. So that... When we want to be, uh, say, basing our actions on, on chanda, on, the, on the, the wholesome kind of desiring and, and uh, interest, then the more that that, that can be based, uh, uh, say, on mindfulness and wisdom, and the less it's based on self-view, the more it's going to lead to peace. So within the Eightfold Path, you have uh, the aspect of right effort, which again has four aspects. You won't be tested on all of this other than by your own minds. <laughs> you don't have to memorize all of this. But <clears throat> So the four aspects of right effort are uh, to restrain the unwholesome from arising. So to, say, uh, to have the intention and to work and not allowing greed or anger or selfishness, uh, 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 jealousy and, and so forth to arise. To restrain the unwholesome from arising. 
if the unwholesome has arisen, if you're already feeling a sense of anger or irritation or fear or jealousy, greed, yeah, craving, uh, if that unwholesome has arisen, to let it go. Uh, the third part of right effort is to cultivate the wholesome, to cultivate concentration, loving-kindness, uh, wisdom, compassion, and so forth. And then uh, the fourth one is to uh, sustain in being any, uh, any wholesome qualities that have, uh, that have already arisen, so to, uh, to maintain in being. So there's a lot of doing there. So right effort involves a lot of work. It's, uh, it's steering the mind. You're recognizing the, the, the unwholesome, letting it go. Recognizing the wholesome and uh, feeding it, maintaining it, keeping it in being. So there's work going on. You know, the Eightfold Path is, is a path of action. There's a, 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 a whole a comprehensive aspect of, of doing. So that when um, we are, say, working with the mind in a, uh, in a way that's based on right effort, we can still be working really hard. <clears throat> we can be putting forth a, a great deal of energy and effort. But because of uh, the... Uh, that effort being free of self-view, because it's not based on craving, uh, then even if there's a, a, a large amount of effort being expended, uh, it's not stressful. There's not that, oh, well, I'll really be glad when I don't have to bother to do this anymore. Won't it be nice when I don't have to bother? Yeah. Uh, but rather, there's a, a, a joyfulness, actually, and an ease that's there, a kind of comfort that's there, while the effort is being extend, uh, expended. So that uh, um, we, uh, as a culture, we, we, are, we have a very strong impulse, like the thank God it's Friday uh, mentality. There's that, wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have to bother? Or be, wouldn't it be great to be an arahant? Then I wouldn't have to bother to practice. Phew. <laughs> that that uh, I would say that's a, a misunderstanding of what enlightenment is. But it's based on that same kind of, of self-view. But if you look at the life of the Buddha as an example, he worked really hard. You know, he, uh, after his enlightenment, he didn't, sit, he didn't just sort of sit under the Bodhi tree and say, oh, well, thank goodness all that's over. <laughs> he did think about it for, a, for a, about a, uh, seven weeks. He sat under these different trees and was contemplating his enlightenment. And then it, well, there was the thought that passed through his mind, no one's ever going to understand this. It's going to be impossible for me to explain this to anybody. So there, there really isn't any point in me trying to, to um, convey this to anyone. So that thought did cross his mind. But then uh, the Brahma god Sahampati appeared and said, please, for the benefit of those with a little bit of dust in their eyes, please you know, share the understanding that you have. And so uh, uh, the Buddha so listen to that, and then cast his vision around the world, and said, "Well, yeah, this sampati is uh, is absolutely right. There are beings who are really lost and, and uh, caught up in greed, hatred, and delusion, but there are some who are not so caught up. They just have a little bit of dust in their eyes. Okay, for the sake of them, I'll make the effort to teach. So then, for the next forty-five years, he worked really hard, and incredibly effectively. Two thousand five hundred years have gone by since then. I like to point out when the Buddha was teaching." This was the, it was the Iron Age. It wasn't even the late Iron Age. It was the, the early to middle Iron Age in this country. Iron was a new thing in this country when the Buddha was teaching. It was 450 years before the Romans arrived. It was a long time ago. <laughs> so it's incredible that we are the inheritors uh, all these centuries later 
of these words that the Buddha spoke and that have come down through the centuries to us and are still very, very effective. So it's kind of miraculous that uh, the teachings have, uh, have sort of sustained themselves in this form. And the reason why they did is because the Buddha worked really, really hard. <laughs> he was incredibly imaginative and inventive in his, his teaching. He was um, uh, very proactive in you know, walking all over northeast India and uh, giving instruction to all kinds of people from you know, farmers and you know, local villagers and uh, uh, government ministers and royals and uh, to the Brahmin priests and to merchants and you know, anybody and everybody. So the Buddha worked really hard, but none of that work was stressful. So that uh, uh, I mean, uh, maybe it's not a very good idea to compare ourselves to the Buddha. <laughs> But uh, I, I think it's, it is helpful in a way to have that as an example that it's not the work, it's not the doing that is the burden. It's the attitude towards it. You know, that's what the, 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 the different ingredient is. So when we learn to, um, uh, to f uh, work from a, uh, a heart of mindfulness and wisdom, then we realize that uh, the, the dilemma there of should I just uh, work uh, uh, against the way things are, to contend against the way things are and try to make it go my way, or whether I should just sort of switch off and, and not feel and try to disconnect? You know, both of those are wrong because the, the way of peace is not a way of disengagement, but rather a way of total attunement, attunement of this life to all life, attunement of this mind to, to all minds, and then letting that attunement guide action and speech. And uh, you know, any of you who've looked at the scriptures at all or, or studied the life of the Buddha, it is staggering how uh, imaginative he was, and what a creative thinker, and the kind of similes he came up with and the stories, the, the illustrations and the examples that he just sort of spontaneously would, uh, would come up with. Like there's the suttas where he's talking to a farmer and he, he talks about you know, the 11 things you need to do to look after cows successfully. And then he, he just, just kind of apparently off the cuff, he talks about looking after cows and how he as a warrior noble prince knew so much about animal husbandry, I do not know. But he just immediately comes up with the 11 things you need to do to look after cows to help them flourish and, and uh, do well and then compares that to 11 things you need to do to look after your mind. And uh, he could just do that uh, with anybody that he was talking to. So... Uh, what this means, or this points to it in a, in a way that's helpful for us, is that uh, when we are able to find that uh, middle way, then it's, uh, it's not only very restful and peaceful, but it's also very productive. It means that we are able to use the capacities, you know, the, the abilities that we have to, the, to the, the fullest extent. We can use our imagination, our capacities, and uh, be helpful. But also because um, uh, it's a middle way, what, uh, what we find is that if there's a need for us to engage or to use our imagination, our energy and our, our capacity, we do. But we don't have to do that in order to feel a sense of value. Now, uh, probably a few of us here get, uh, uh, have in your life felt a lot of, um, say, affirmation or a sense of self-worth through all the good stuff that you do. 
helping a lot of people, having an occupation, being a doctor or a teacher or a parent, you know, that you feel a lot of gratification because of all the work that you've done and you think of that and think, oh, I've been able to help so many people and I started this school and I, I, I you know, ran that, that clinic and I uh, published these particular, these books or I, I brought my children up in a, in a good way and, and a feeling of, of pride or gladness uh, and satisfaction of having done all that stuff. But then, if you find that you're uh, grasping that, or that, the, the, that those kind of sort of good achievements are taken on with self-view, then they become a source of suffering. Because when your, your child says to you, well, thanks very much, but no thanks. <laughs> that, uh, or that um, you are um, the people, you founded this clinic, and then the, the other members of the, the board of directors say, well, thank you very much, you're our founder, now please... Off you go. You know, we'll we'll run the place much more efficiently without you. Thank you. And you haven't got those uh, that those kind of uh, sources of, of feedback or affirmation. Then we can feel useless. We can feel we're, our, our life is worthless. I'm not doing anything. I'm not worth anything. Or or maybe some of you say, I never run a school. I've never I've never been a doctor. I've never been a teacher. You know, my life has been worthless already. <laughs> so that uh, we can. Um, be so feeding our sense of identity, the feeding self-view from those, in a sense, those wholesome objects, and then not realizing, just like a heroin addict or an alcoholic, that as long as the supply of drug is of choice is is uh, available, we feel good, we feel great. It's like um, you know, if you're an extremely rich rock star, you can get a really good supply of totally pure morphine. <laughs> Yeah, medical grade morphine, and your your uh, morphine habit is not a problem because you've got a good supply. But when the supply cuts off, then there's untold misery. So similarly, if your sense of being, your sense of worth, is fed by having successful children or by having so many uh, so much sort of social approval, so many people liking you on Facebook or following you on Instagram, and or kind of uh, how many people are, you know, nowadays if you publish an academic paper, you can tell how many people have been reading your paper. You can, can look at your scores. And then uh, if, we are, if we are wise, then we'll recognize those kind of addictions, those kind of dependencies. And that we are, uh, will find that we are able to free the heart from that. So whether there is affirmation or not, whether there's something to do or nothing to do, uh, we are uh, our heart is is equally at ease, is equally free, so that uh, we don't depend upon uh, uh, some kind of doing in order to feel a sense of, of worth. Now, I feel this is very very important, uh, and you know I'm a kind of an achiever type myself, <laughs> so I'm speaking from experience, you know, and I do like approval. I admit, <laughs> I, I like success, I like approval, and such like. But one of the things that you find is is most valuable is to to uh, not be dependent on that, to just do what you do and let the world make of it what it will. To whether people uh, praise you or they don't, or they ignore you or they criticize you, uh, you can be uh, at ease. You don't have to be doing something in order to be of of value. There's a um, uh, in the C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Screw Tape Letters which some of you might be familiar with. There's a Buddhist version called Letters from Mara, which Ajahn Punadhamma wrote, which is uh, highly recommended. 
But in the in the screw tape letters, it's sort of uh, the imaginary letters from a, a, a devil to his uh, his nephew who's at work in the world, and the nephew's letters back to his uncle about uh, his successes and failures in trying to uh, confuse humanity and cause trouble in the world. So C.S. Lewis was a quite a, a, a well known, well loved uh, Christian theologian, as well as being a, the writer of the Narnia book, uh, chronicles. But um, anyway, in the screw tape letters, there's this particular comment that really struck me when I was reading it, where uh, he, uh, the writer of the letter is, is talking about this particular person that they, they've met. And she said, uh, uh, she is one who is, uh, who is uh, fully given to the, uh, um, uh, in her commitment to helping others, and the others have about them the look of the hunted The others have about them the look of the hunted. That you know. They, uh, again, I'm not labeling it on or, or kind of trying to make anyone feel embarrassed. I'm not, I can't read anybody's minds, or I don't read your. I don't. I don't go on Facebook, so I don't know your social profiles. I don't know if there are any uh, uh, hi hyperactive good works types here. Maybe I'm, I'm sure there will be. But you know, does your doing of good things uh, it just uh, is that is that something that you have to do? In order to feel good, is that something that your your heart's uh, delight depends upon? That uh, as in that, I mean, it's a kind of a, a cruel comment, but it's also I feel very astute that oh, oh look, someone I can help. Yes, you know, you know, and that moment you've actually lost contact with that person. You don't really see you don't see them. It's like you know, oh look, it's the Sunday afternoon Dhamma talk crowd. Them, you know, you're my audience. If I'm thinking like that, then I've lost you. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. There's no connection uh, between us because you're something that I need in order for me to be in the role of dhamma teacher. You know that uh, that if that's something that I need, and that uh, uh, and I feel uh, depleted or or, or uh, incomplete or or without value, if I haven't got that, then there's a dependency that we've built up in ourselves. So the, the, uh, the, one of the things that uh, was really impressive about uh, Ajahn Chah when I first went to Thailand, I couldn't speak, I couldn't speak or understand Thai at all, you know, not, not a word. Um, but just watching the, the, the dynamic or the exchange between uh, him and uh, teaching a group of people, receiving visitors and so forth, one of the things that's... I lived at Wat Pananachat, the international monastery that's about uh, five... Uh, five or six miles away from from the main monastery, but when Ajahn Chah came to visit us, or we'd go over to visit the main monastery, watching him in action, one of the most uh, powerful things was is that you know, he's very he was very uh, you know wise and and could ver be very you know, charming and engaging, but uh, it was this really distinct feeling of he doesn't need anybody to love him. Oh, <laughs> he doesn't need to have everybody's approval. And when somebody would say something that was particularly kind of flattering, or um, or sort of uh, or kind of laughing, you know, laughing extra sort of uh, self-consciously at one of uh, Ajahn Chah's jokes, you know, he would this kind of like stone cold look <laughs> could kind of pass across his face, like you know, really. And uh, he didn't need to to feed on that. He didn't need to be approved or loved. He was there to serve. 
to to uh, to uh, embody the Dhamma, to to teach the Dhamma, he didn't he didn't need to be praised or, or liked or approved, uh, and uh, it was uh, amazing to me to see that someone who was so independent, you know, he was he, he wasn't cold, but, uh, but uh, he didn't he wouldn't feed that sense of oh Lumpur, you're so wise, you're so wonderful, you're so great, you're the best teacher in the world. You know, he would he had a whole catalogue of ways he would brush off those kind of comments, some kind of uh, uh, northeast Thai wisecrack, you know, or some kind of. They have this wonderful uh, part of the local dialect is this sort of um, grunt from the hara, which is, <clears throat> which can mean yes or no or are you kidding, <laughs> or like oh really, <laughs> it can mean anything of, of, the, of that uh, that range, but. Uh, it was a, a, a kind of um, independence that he manifested. I felt it was really, in terms of the middle way, the difference between the middle way and my way, is that that, uh, that quality of being totally ready to engage and to attune to a situation, but not needing anything from it. That he didn't need people to be any way for him. You know, someone could, uh, could do something, and that was you know very sort of impressive or inspiring, and you know, and he would feel gladdened by that, but he wouldn't say, oh you know oh you know well done, well done, you're the best moment we've ever had <laughs> you know, he would uh you know he would choose a moment to to uh, to say, you know someone near Anidaro, he's the one to follow, yeah <laughs> at a, an appropriate moment or <clears throat> or he'd say um He's not the one to follow. <laughs> or if uh, someone did something that was completely out, completely outrageous or, 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 or totally totally foolish, uh, again he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't just sort of react blindly, but he would sort of take it in, and, uh, and then at an appropriate moment he'd say, um, "Did you? What did you really mean when you said that? Because uh, uh, it, it, it's uh, to me it sounded pretty crazy. So uh, what, what was behind that?" So that uh, he was not one who um, made rash judgments. He, he uh, in a sense, left space around the people that he met. He didn't need people to be a particular way. He didn't need them to be understanding what he said. He didn't need them to be approving of what he said. But he relied uh, completely on a sense of, of openness and attunement to the time, the place, the situation. And that uh, I feel that... Uh, when we are considering these these areas of how to work uh, in the world, you know, to work uh, from the basis of right effort and uh, and uh, freedom from self view, that the, the the essential quality is so letting go of self centered thinking and that openness and attunement of who's here, what's going on, is there something to say, is there nothing to say? Don't don't feel as though just because you're here, you've got to do something. <laughs> so in terms of Hamlet's dilemma, it's not a matter of doing or not doing. If the heart is really embodying the middle way, then when it's time to do, you'll do. When it's time to take action, to take arms against the sea of troubles, you will. When it's time to be quiet and to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, you will. When it's time to be quiet, you're totally at home and at ease with being quiet. And when it's time to say something, you'll, you'll say something. You don't need people to uh, to approve of what you say. You don't need to uh, feel that you're lacking anything if you're keeping quiet. 
but uh, it's a, a, a essentially uh, a responsivity to the time, the place, the situation, and so that when our um, uh, our actions, our, our attitudes are, are guided in this way, then we can really be a, of most benefit to ourselves, to others, and the 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 work that we do. Some people will like it and will approve; other people will uh, not even, will dislike it, disapprove, and a lot will not even notice. <laughs> And then, but our happiness is not dependent upon being liked or not liked or, or being noticed. But uh, over and over again, uh, trusting in that quality of attunement, and uh, uh, and then the the last aspect, the the vimanksa, the reviewing, is having acted in that way, you know, functioning in that way. What's the result? If this is the way that we operate, we let go of self view. We attune ourselves to the time, the place, the situation. What's the result of that? A, um, uh, a final story I'll tell. I've told quite a few times before, but it's a, it's a, a useful story. It actually occurred, the exchange occurred right here in the sala at Amravati. So again, I was uh, going back to my own story a little bit. So I was kind of obsessed with being approved of and pleasing everybody all the time. So uh, I was a kind of compulsive good guy. Yeah, my door was always open, uh, you know, I was always available, I would always volunteer for everything. When it was uh, time to do the washing up, I'd always be first one to the tubs and the last one to finish. I would, you know, clean, not only clean the sinks, I'd clean the rubbish bins. And so I was a kind of obsessive do-gooder. And, uh, and I really liked all the praise that I got from doing that. But then I began to notice I was, uh, I was really stuck on being approved of and being liked and being the, the, the good guy and being the helpful guy. So I decided to consciously work on this. So I deliberately stopped being helpful. I wasn't. I didn't start fights, but I deliberately uh, left things uncleaned. Uh, I would, you know, when the, the washing up and the minimum was, was done, I'd walk off. Or there was rubbish on the ground, I wouldn't pick it up. Or there's, uh, I'd walk into the bathroom and the sinks were all dirty, and I'd leave them dirty and walk out again. So uh, that took a lot of effort. I could feel this. <laughs> He's reaching for that thrown away tissue that shouldn't be there. But, uh, I trained myself to walk past it and, and also not be seeking approval. And uh, so I was doing this for a couple of years. And then this uh, my, one of my fellow monks here, uh, uh, he doesn't live here anymore, but uh, he just, if, if, without trying to be uh, uh, pointed or uh, accusing anyway, it was quite a sincere, friendly remark. He said, you know, you're a lot easier to live with since you stopped trying to be perfect. <laughs> so I wasn't quite sure whether to be insulted or, or, or flattered, but, uh, uh, but it, was a, it was a very, very useful comment that me trying to please everyone and be perfect, like the, 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 the do-gooder you know, hunting the people for help, that yeah. uh, there was a kind of tension that was being carried around, a, a stressing. And that when you just sort of stop acting in a compulsive way, or you're not uh, depending on a kind of doingness and, and approval, just to learn to leave things alone when it's time to leave things alone, let somebody else do it. Then, and there's to operate from from more of an intuitive uh, sense of the moment. Then there's a peacefulness, and it was really striking that that was more more pleasant to live with than me being the would be perfect monk. So I put these thoughts for reflection this afternoon, and we can have a cup of tea now, and uh, resume for our Dhamma discussion at uh, 20 past.